0: And I'm here with Michael McPherson. we're with Veterans of Peace, Chapter 92, and uh, this program is on the continuing crisis in Afghanistan, and uh, uh, this is a program that will be broadcast on KODX 96.9 FM radio, and also posted on the VFP 92 org uh, website. I'd like to read the VFP, a part of the VFP statement on U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and that goes, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was shameful and poorly executed. We have left too many behind. It's only after veteran and media outcry after leaving dedicated translators and their families, people who risked their lives for the U.S. that U.S. decided too late to include them in their withdrawal. Many Afghans have been blocked by callous immigration policies and Muslim bans from seeking safety in the United States from the destabilization in Afghanistan that the U.S. created. Caring for refugees and civilians fleeing from conflict is basic decency and the United States fails to act with the urgency required to protect people. Casual disregard for Afghan lives continues in all levels. BFP has some demands. We continue to stand by these demands that we accept all Afghan refugees and provide humanitarian aid and resettlement aid The military immediately released 300 names of those quoted in the Afghanistan papers. And as per our guest Assad, the United States should also provide some immediate security at the airport, a perimeter so that people can exit and get on these aircraft safely. We did congressional hearings that include perjury trials for all those officials who knowingly lied in official congressional testimony including closed door sessions of the House and Senate Armed, Services committee, Armed Forces Committee, a special congressional committee to investigate fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement for the war of Afghanistan, and a congressional tribunal allowing Afghanistan veterans to testify about their experiences, repeal of the AUMF author, authorization for use of military force against terror, terrorists, which include any sub, subsequent AUMF to have a sunset clause. Recognition of moral injury as a legitimate diagnosis and reparations to Afghanistan and all Afghans.
1: Um, Just so people know, if you want to read the full statement, please go to veteransforpeace.org. You'll see it right on the front page. Um, Part of the statement is on the front page, the full statement. You just have to click to go to the full statement. So um, we're not gonna talk a lot, Mike and I, today. Um, we're just gonna go straight to this interview um, with an Afghan-American, Aras Azizada, um, because his words uh, about the situation are very important and uh, we can give political commentary in another show. Uh, so thank you for listening. Again, you can um, hear us every fourth Wednesday of the month at KODXseattle.org. And you can find past episodes there as well. Uh, The uh, show streams from 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific time. everyone for tuning in to our show today. Our guest is Arash Azizada. Arash is a writer, photographer, videographer and community organizer. He tells and documents the stories of marginalized communities across the United States. In the past decade plus, he has shot music videos and short films as well as photographed protest movements from Occupy Wall Street to Black Lives Matter. He has spent time as a media consultant and has helped companies, organizations and cities grow by improving their communication strategy and optimize their online presence. He is deeply committed to social justice and building communities. Um, He has been and continues to be an active organizer in the Afghan American diaspora.
2: Um, So thank you for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate uh, having the chance to speak to you today. Um,
1: So just to get started here, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Um, I I think my journey starts uh, probably during the cold war somehow before I I came into existence, but uh, you know, my parents are Afghan refugees. Uh, They are the product of displacement. They are the product of the cold war. Uh, they are a product of the proxy war and uh, in the United States is involved in, in some type of manner, shape or form in Afghanistan for the past 50, 60, 70 years. Um, but my parents flee in the wake of the uh, invasion by the Soviet Union, uh, which obviously the United States is involved in. Um, and so my father, I think, flees in 1979. My, my mom flees in 1984. Eventually I'm born in the Netherlands, uh, in 1987. Um, and, uh, eventually we moved to the United States. Uh, that's roughly 20 years ago. And I've, I've, I've lived in the United States ever since I grew up in Northern Virginia, now I'm in Los Angeles. Um, uh, but my journey and like my trajectory and the work I've doing has always kind of been inward in terms of like, um, uh, organizing my community. Um, we mirror, as a community, uh, what happens back home. So when there's pain and misery and conflict, I think we can kind of pick up on that here uh, stateside or, or in Europe or perhaps even in places like Australia, Afghan refugees are scattered all over the world. 90 percent of them in countries actually like Pakistan and Iran. Oh. Uh, and, and, and my work slowly just brought me back closer to Afghanistan. And I think I spent a lot of years being in denial about what the war on terror meant to me personally, but what, what it meant for the Afghan people. Uh, I think I bought into the uh, Western white savior narrative and, and and the Afghan women's right narrative and the fact that the U.S. was there good with good faith, well-intentioned um, uh, to try to help the Afghan people. But as, as time progressed, I think I came to realize due to a variety of things, you know, I also am a United States uh, taxpayer, and I also uh, lived in Washington, D.C. for quite a few years, and I've been around the United States, and I see also uh, what uh, the kind of state, police state we find ourselves in, and how America treats its own indigenous population, queer folks, obviously, how it treats uh, Black people, and I think that also is mirrored um, in Afghanistan. I think my commitment from I think my commitment to the Afghan people is also reflected in and I stand always and try to have my work be in solidarity with other folks. But I think there was a time in the past few years where I uh, became more committed to uh, uh, like putting uh, my efforts into advocating specifically for Afghan women in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and other like marginalized groups. And that I think that's a complex and, and maybe complicated process when you live so far away from it. Uh, but I became committed to end, ending the war uh, in in the U.S. war and a coalition war in Afghanistan, and uh, we're seeing kind of like come to fruition the disorganization, uh, the you know kind of like uh, self inflicted uh, position that the United States has put itself in and, and which is now harming uh, the Afghan uh, people. And so one of the big things that came out of that is the Afghans for a better tomorrow campaign, uh, which is kind of now focusing and shifting based on, on what's happening on the ground. Uh, we've been quite quite busy in the past 10 days. Um, but before that, you know, we were in favor of a peaceful settlement and to the US occupation, including military drone strikes and CIA run strike squads. Uh, as well as a you know so-called over the horizon military capabilities, uh, but one of our main points has been that the United States needs to take in Afghan refugees, uh, which uh, we are currently advocating for quite heavily. Okay, and say the name of the organization or um, group again. So uh, it's a, yeah, it's uh, Afghans for a Better Tomorrow, okay. uh, which I think the, the the title itself speaks to what our what our vision is. Um, you know, and it's like our commitment. Um, in Afghanistan, for the Afghan people, we believe that tomorrow can be stable, it can be sovereign, uh, it can be peaceful. And the same actually goes also tr- is also true of, of the, the the marginalized folks in the United States. You know, like um, black folks are uh, oppressed in the United States and elsewhere. And we also believe in a better tomorrow for for other marginalized folks. And I think we're all always aligned in, in mission and values, and we uh, welcome. Uh, allies and collaborators and and friends and um, you can find us on instagram you know our at is uh, it's afghans for a better tomorrow on twitter our ad is afghans tomorrow and for folks who want to visit our website it's uh, weareafghans.org okay great um
1: let me just say that um veterans for peace i helped develop what what i call a lens or a framework called peace at home peace abroad And the kind of solidarity you're talking about um, where standing with oppressed people around the world, you can't really, I I feel like we can't really have peace here in the US if we're not also working for peace in other places because the forces, they're really in in many ways the same forces that create the violence and destruction in all of our communities. So yeah, I definitely (laughs) agree with you. Um, Can you tell us, you know, we hear all kinds of stuff. The news is like, okay, now, I have to say, and I can't imagine how you must feel. um, We've been at war for 20 years. Now, all of a sudden, in the news, that's all they want to talk about, which is is good. But why weren't we having a discussion, a real discussion about U.S. policy then, you know, for the past 20 years? They act as if they're uncovering some new things. Um, What do you want us to know as a person who's directly connected to people there, and what's happening there?
2: I would say on, on the state side and the diaspora end, our community, and I don't have time to really talk about my feelings sure. at this point, because I'm sure. laser focused on, and on trying to evacuate the people I deeply care and love for. Right. Uh, including friends and families and community members that, that um, have folks back home. I, I can tell folks that we are, we are shattered, you know, like, I have to go to a day job yes. and I also have to do this advocacy work and I have to show up on, you know, on this podcast as well. And I'm pretending to be a human being when I'm not, you know, like we're all deeply broken because of this is the, what we are seeing in the, what we're seeing in the past few days is a combination of like decades and decades, specifically 20 years, but like decades and decades, like foreign policy that is. 10, 20 years older than, than my, me and I'm 33 years old. I've been on this planet for 33 years. And what I kinda wanna like um, pivot to is actually the like pain and misery that the Afghan people are, are undergoing through. So now there are specifically a lot of folks who are at risk, uh, LGBTQ folks, um, you know, ethnic and religious minorities and um, uh, just women in general actually uh, you know, f- people associated with the U.S. government and the military, f- with aid organizations. And there's a lot of folks who are trying to evacuate and, and escape repression and possibly imprisonment, murder, uh, execution, repression, being lashed. So th- th- that's really what's at stake here. And that's w- one part of the equation. And the other part of the equation is also that, like, there's the United States, we're asking and demanding of the U.S. and the world to step up and try to get as many people out that deserve safety and refuge. But at the same time, there's 38 million people who will still live there tomorrow and the day after that and next year. And those folks uh, need assistance, despite who they might be ruled with, which the U S essentially put in place, you know, like the United States here is responsible for empowering and And, and, and in some cases, even funding the Taliban, uh, because it funneled so much money to that country that it just ended up in Taliban hands. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, Right now what we, well, we're also dealing with is a humanitarian crisis. <laughs> Their banks have no cash. Uh, people are not shopping because they have no money. So there's a sense of desperation on a variety of different levels uh, and that's kind of the, the current situation on the ground. Folks are trying to uh, reach the airport and there's some of whom are receiving um, you know visas from uh, what is the US embassy now at the airport. But they're unable to get through the airport. It's not an orderly situation. It's chaotic. They are getting shot at. They are getting beaten up. They have to go through Taliban checkpoints. The like journey to the airport by itself is uh, arduous and, and dangerous one and one that uh, people have died trying to um, trying to reach. So that's where we find ourselves at right now in this very moment. Uh, so it's a sense of desperation, chaos, and crisis, I think, for yes. the Afghan people.
3: Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, thank you for that update um i have a little bit of a window into your feelings when it comes to a crisis i was in Ferguson uh so every day doing that but then having to go back to the office and do vfp stuff when a lot of times it intersect but a lot of times it didn't and how to you know how do you deal with the crisis that's about you um, and still do these other things so i i'm humbled that you're you're doing what you're doing. Thank you so much again for being on the show. Um, so the last formal question, but I mean, Mike, do you have any questions? Um, Why don't you go yeah, ahead, Michael? Finish, okay. finish
0: your questions.
1: Okay. Um, so just thinking about the future and I don't even know if, if you really can, you know, um, this is a tough question that I was thinking, should I even ask this? But at the same time, I know that there are people there's one thing about I'm just gonna say the oppressor, whoever it is, um, is always thinking about the future, um, and it's kind of an advantage they have on the people they oppress because the people they oppress are just trying to deal with the moment, um, and VFP and other organizations that want to help, you know, we need to figure out how to help now. So I guess first I should ask, what should we do right now? And then we can think a little bit at least about w- how should we prepare for the future? So what should we do right now to, to, to help? What what
2: can you tell people they should do? Um, I, w- I would say there's a variety of things, and I'm glad the world has uh, is paying attention in a moment of crisis, obviously, and we needed folks to, to pay attention to us for a very long time, and I've been having a hard trouble, I've, I've, had to, I've been personally having a lot of trouble Uh, making that happen but we got the world's eyes on us now and i think that's important and i think that's useful you know um we're doing a variety of things you know first and foremost we are uh hoping that folks join us and putting political pressure on our policymakers, both through congressional levels as well as the white house um to um, make phone calls on our behalf Um, the afghan american community specifically is outraged um and is like in a position to um and finds itself in a desperate position and, and is advocating uh quite heavily and we're all past capacity and so i think my you know both emotionally spiritually and, and other and, and physically and so i think the ask of, of folks listening in of non-afghans of veterans of folks uh, folks of consciousness so to speak Right. Is you know we ask you that that you make phone calls on our behalf and you know if you go to our website and and on our social media handles we have you know we have a all that stuff is in there we have a congressional call script right. we're asking folks you know we're telling you exactly what to say we're telling you exactly who to call uh, we also have a petition that we are moving through moveon.org mm-hmm. uh, that has received over a hundred plus thousand. Uh, signatures and we're just hoping to add on you know our collective voices is, is really what matters and that's why i also keep mentioning you know like uh, some of my community organizing in the past has been about you know how do afghans stand for black lives you know and in this very moment uh we are asking everybody else you know like especially folks with privilege in the united states folks with uh, power and connection and also just like 10 minutes you know if you have 10 minutes sign our petition and make the phone call if you have five minutes sign the petition and make our phone call there's a variety of, of, of good uh, organizations that you that you can donate to as well uh, one of them is uh, Red read to lead uh, and another one is um, you know doctors without borders these are just basic uh, aid organizations that we're probably having getting money uh, issues, getting uh, money to it in this very moment. This seems to be a logistical issue at the moment, but I think that money, essentially, when they reach the Afghan people, uh, since I mentioned it's a humanitarian crisis, that's that's that that would be really hopeful. Uh, and on our advocacy is basically four four things right now, which is a the evacuation facilitation and keeping the airport specifically running and extending the perimeter and extending it. hopefully also past this like artificial August 31st deadline that's been set by the United States. You know, like the United, like the U S has been there 20 years and all of a sudden it's, it's, it has to stick to this artificial deadline that is set for itself. And that it's uh you know, for 20 years, it's been dropping bombs on our country, but now all of a sudden we have to stick to a deadline uh, that, that we, that we want to leave. It's like, you know, and I find I find this weird as a you know leftist uh, organizer, as a progressive, as somebody who's who does not believe in the current system. That I'm advocating for the U.S. military to do something, right? Yeah, yeah. And in this moment of crisis, I'm asking the U.S. military and the United States government to extend that perimeter to keep it safe, to keep it orderly, so that my friends and family can get out. Yeah, and so that the friends and family of my friends. And that the friends of my family members can get out and find some kind of safe, a safe haven and refuge, and also that brings us brings us kind of to our Second demand, which is that the United States specifically, but the European Union, the world community uh, at large, should open its door to or doors to Afghan refugees. Anybody seeking safe haven or refuge deserves such, and everybody who wants to live it in dignity should be able to to. Whether it has in Texas, uh, Berlin, uh, Pakistan. Uh, Los Angeles, Kansas, uh, the United the United States owes these type this type of reparations. You know, like I think we can have a, a larger philosophical discussion about what reparation really means and what that should look like. Right now, for me, for our people, for us, for our community, that looks that's reparations. Like let us live where bombs aren't dropping every day. Right. You know, let us live where we can live in peace to some degree. And that's just not to dismiss the real problems that the U.S. Has having a lack of healthcare, care, gun violence. But uh, let me assure you, the people I'm talking to on the ground, I mean, they are desperate, you know, they are desperate. And the United States owes us that at the very least. And so our third demand is kind of like this, this immigration red tape that exists. The entire system re- is, exists to reject um, refugees from entering the country. Uh, and what we're also witnessing is that if there's a political will, and if there's an, uh, and there's obviously an ability but if there's a political will, this is where the phone calls and the petition comes in, then people can come in. You know, all of a sudden the United States is evacuating, not enough, but it's evacuating thousands of folks. You know, where was where was that political will 10 days ago That's or right. two weeks ago or two months ago or two years ago? You know, like my my parents fled in 1980, and 1984. That was a different world. That was not a, a world that was uh, welcoming refugees. It's way more hostile today, you know, like the president of of France goes on TV and says we see the crisis in Afghanistan and our reaction is we will stop uh, irregular, quote unquote, irregular migration flows, which to which he means Afghan and like Afghan uh, uh, refugees of war and conflict. Uh, The the Turkey and Greece are. Two countries that are not very friendly with each other—they're banding together to build a wall to stop Afghan refugees from coming in. So that is what oh. people are up against today. And so, like, kind of our, our our latest point is also like this emergency humanitarian aid package. Also, what I call reparations—you know, like whatever makes people on Capitol Hill more comfortable if they want to cloak it in a different language, if they want to call it assistance aid. I call it reparations. The three, you know, you, me, and your listeners can call it reparations, whatever they want to cloak it in. And in terms of like uh, political expediency and efficiency, right? <laughs> that's reparations as well, you know. But and, and at the very at the very very core, right? It's like assisting and allowing for Afghan um, people in Afghanistan, because millions and millions of them will remain, as almost two thirds of which are under age of thirty five. Mm. They just want basic necessities. They want to be able to have uh, bottled water, uh, at least one meal a day. That is literally what we are talking about. The Afghan people are not just dealing with the repressive rule now of the Taliban, aided and emboldened and uh, uplifted by the United States government. They're also dealing with a drought. They're dealing dealing with a humanitarian crisis and they're dealing with uh, COVID-19 uh pandemic right. um and so those are kind of our, our demands and and we ask folks to uplift that and and to kind of um um you know assist us in in keeping this in the news and to like keep the conversation going and to um to have help to help advocate for us you know at its at its basic core okay thank you uh we would definitely get that
1: out um in more places than, than our little radio show um so with all that being said, and, and if, this is, if this is an appropriate time, that's fine, you know? Um, but I was thinking about, okay, so there's the future and what kind of groundwork? Like, I, 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 um, after I left this Executive Director of Veterans for Peace, I started working as a salesperson at a, a furniture company, actually. And one of, the, one of my coworkers came up to me this weekend And she's like, I know maybe you can't talk about this, but what do you think about Afghanistan? And that made me think about people ask these questions because they're trying to process stuff. But it also leads to what they're thinking now leads to what they'll allow politically for the future. So I want to be planting seeds. You know what I mean? And And I don't know. I'm just trying to I'm processing it, too. You know, so I'm just thinking, what do you think? Um, because I want to follow the lead of a person who is directly impacted. I can be thinking anything. Um, yeah. So what do you think I, we should say or what should we do that at least begins to create some kind of platform for what should be happening next?
2: Um, I, I mean, essentially, like besides the, the things that I mentioned previously, yes. which is, you know, they're like uplifting our demands, I think, to continue to keep this in the news and like to keep it in people's like vision and consciousness as, as possible like i understand that like eventually the media requests will dry up and that the the requests for being to be on a podcast um will dry up and like people's attention span also like you know i i noticed that about myself i'm like you know like i am tired and i'm sick and tired of like reading about the pain and misery that goes on in the world. And I is far from the only place, you know, like whether that's Haiti or the United States, a lot of people died this in these past 18 months, right. majority of them be, a majority of them being, you know, like black and brown people in this country or right. disproportionately or around this. the world. Yeah. And around the world, you know, like whether that's India or, or, okay. or Haiti or, you know, and so I think the best way to move forward is to like, for, for example, for, for folks to continue to have this conversation and to do it, uh in a way that's like i understand like folks want to do something this week but like there's also a need next week you know and that can look a variety of different ways people are hitting me up and saying hey like do you want to do an art show you know like do you want to do a fundraiser and the answer to that is like yes and we will give you guidance on on where to send your money to but folks can do that on their own you know like and i understand uh if you can and able to there's there's afghans everywhere you know there's afghans in missouri (laughs) there's afghans in kansas uh, a lot of them in, are in New York and in Northern Virginia, D.C. area and, and Southern, and Northern California, these kind of like population centers, but they're yeah. everywhere, you know, like reach right. out to, reach out to, some, like I might be overwhelmed and swamped at the moment. Just, uh, you can send your Afghan voices everywhere and invite them to come speak or to at least ask them for guidance on, hey, like, what, what do you think? Where's the best place to uh, uh, to send money? And I think, the, the overall larger request is to figure out how to talk about the Afghan people and not feel like, obviously, like, I, I'm sharing how we personally all feel, which is not great, you know, like, we're we in pain and misery, and at the same time, I ask people to not talk about us as, as if we need to be saved We don't, mm-hmm. you know? Right. right um, We have agency, we have power, but, like, when there's, like, imperialism and when there's, like, neocolonialism and then when there's foreign interference, and I want also people to know to folks that, like, U.S. does a lot of harm, and people should also be aware of the fact that, like, U.S. is not the only actor here. There's, like, multiple bad actors, and that needs to be in people's consciousness, too. Mm. I, too, kind of forget that, like, the U.S. does great harm around the world, has, like, interfered, and, and like, specifically has harmed the Afghan people. And I would also say that, you know, so has Russia, right. and so has Iran, and so has Pakistan, and specifically in in, in place like Afghanistan, so has all, all of its neighbors. And nobody really has the interest of... of of the Afghan people at heart, including Afghan elites, for example, you know, and that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a special category of people the US also has. So the US has a large responsibility, a large moral obligation, a large responsibility to move, uh, help to move towards like um, a, 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 play, a place of like less harm or harm reduction, so to speak. Um, I, I just want to uh, like allow folks to uh, like let that enter their consciousness and to find a really like complicated place uh, to let Afghans uh, kind of speaks for themselves and to like not just be known to be like, for example, if you're advocating for an Afghan to be allowed into the United States. Like, you know, like there was somebody on MSNBC the other day and he said, you know, they make great food, you know, <laughs> and I was, I was and I'm seeing my friends leave of the country. They're artists, they're entrepreneurs, you know, like they're uh, ba- uh, uh, folks who are breaking boundaries and 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 uh, destroying ceilings, like uh, transforming Afghan society, you spent 20 years investing in, it, and now that all of that is shattered and they're gone, and to also like realize that like yes, those those the best, you know, so so to speak, the the most creative, the most um, uh, like par- parts of like very like valuable members of civil society, yeah yeah, those folks are leaving, and at the same time, like the average person also is allowed to seek and have stability and, and a home and like, uh, refugee. You know, I, I hope, you know, at some point, ref- refugee resettlement uh, money. We could call that reparations as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like the average person who's who's not famous, who's not on Twitter, who's not being featured on, on BBC right now, those folks too deserve, like regardless of what their value is to American society, you know, like I'm sure they will be uh, contributing members. But like, okay. Uh, if you're average you you, you're allowed to have a life you're allowed to live in dignity uh and like stop i think what i'm asking folks is to stop trying to convince people that hey like afghans will be useful like so what so what if we're just like we pay our taxes and and work nine to five and drive uber who cares you know like and so I, i i hope folks i've been guilty of like doing advocacy like that being like hey take us in you know like uh, we are awesome members of society and we're so, we're so amazing. And it's like, let's reframe that, you know, like, let's shed those like old frameworks and let's approach this in a way where we can move forward. Uh, so that like the people after us, the younger folks uh, kind of adopt that. And so that's, that's what I think would be, would be useful.
1: All right. Thank you very much. Thank you,
0: Mike. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, thank you for coming on and, and, and giving us your perspective. I think that for the uh, Veterans for Peace, we sort of are in a odd position of, uh, which I support of the initial sort of issue is providing security at the airport. So these people who want to leave can leave without getting killed. Uh, And the United States has clearly got the capability to do that, even if that means putting more troops on the ground. Uh, The other thing is that we will do our best to promote the uh, points that you made about the uh, uh, refugees and and, uh, acceptance of them. any other and other organizations that can help, including uh, Medicine Science Frontier and and uh, uh, the Move On. So we've got uh, a small platform, but we will we will uh, do our best to, to uh, facilitate this. Um, it's it's an interesting sort of uh, it's been commented on before. The refugees, as a result of our precipitous and and inevitable uh exit from vietnam and and the actually the inevitable sort of exit from afghanistan which is all american doing it's it's, uh, it's right on us so we have a responsibility to these people and we will do our best to actually remind this country and through just individual, uh individual conversations that michael was talking about to educate our family and friends too um it's not uh, not so much in Afghanistan as, as a victim, but uh, you know, American responsibility for that.
2: Yeah. So thank you. Yeah, of course, and I, I guess I would also say, you know, like I have not natu- naturally seen veterans as as friends of mine. Sure. You know, and like yeah. our approach is rather emotional, as I'm sure as that is of the veterans, right? And over the past few years, you know, like uh, one of one of the most positive developments of, of my work is that I I know folks within vfp that's been like great and awesome and it's been maybe perhaps a weird a little bit weird and complicated but i would say you know like we have a shared pain you know we have a shared like uh pain that that we all can like kind of relate to and it's like perhaps difficult for folks to uh, engage with but i i I think i i think we afghans we understand it like it's it's perhaps like deeply complex but afghans have been fighting you know not all of us but like a lot of them have been fighting and that fighting looks a variety of different ways, whether like that is picking up arms or that is like fighting against oppression and i would say there's like a shared commonality amongst all of us and i want to say you know to veterans who are tuning into your podcast i hear you i feel you i see you and especially this week because i don't do not i do not feel like a whole human being right I am shattered and I'm broken. I and mean, I think that's like a relatable uh, feeling for a lot of folks to put together. Even uh, to so, like, you know, for me, I the greatest You know, like I have a lot of privilege that I carry. And still I feel this pain. And I would say, you know, I am decentering myself. And I think, you know, folks in, in, in the veteran community also can decenter themselves like process internally what that means for them and elevate our voices and, and, and our cause. And I think that that would uh, go a long way towards uh, bringing us to a place of, of healing and perhaps peace one day. All right. All right. So
1: I think that's a great place to end the um, interview. Uh, very positive
2: and uh, thoughtful words. Uh, thank so you. thank you again. Yeah. Thank you. I, tr- I try to, I try to end it on that maybe like, you know, a hopeful note <laughs> yeah right
1: thank you to Arash Azizada for talking to us today we're very fortunate to have him um, he's very busy as you can imagine with the crisis that's taking place in Afghanistan so if you could you heard him talk about um, getting in touch with your congressperson um, you can go to the website of um, Afghans for a Better Tomorrow uh, weareafghans.org you will find information that you can use to talk to your congressperson also money is very important people need support so check out um, READ to LEAD that's READ just like READ READ to LEAD AFG.org READ to LEAD AFG.org check them out donate there or donate with Doctors Without Borders Um, you've heard of them I'm sure doctorswithoutborders.org so go there and uh, see if you can give some money. As you know, people need support. Now we are going to turn to an event that happened seven years ago on August 9th, 2014. Michael Brown Jr., an 18 year old black man, and when I say man, he was 18, so he was really still a child, was fatally shot by 28 year old white police officer, Darren Wilson, in the city of Ferguson, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis. Now, it's important to remember this date because, of course, this is our August show and we continue to fight for police accountability and reform. But after our conversation with Arash, it is also an opportunity to briefly talk about how struggles are connected. Arash spoke about the state-sponsored violence faced by people of color and specifically black people here in the U.S. and around the world. At home, police are the instruments of this violence. Abroad is U.S. soldiers. I used to be one of those soldiers. At home and around the world, poor people are overwhelmingly the target of this violence. That is not a coincidence. Hundreds of people have died by police violence since Michael Brown Jr. Black and indigenous Americans are disproportionately killed. However, it is seldom talked about that the majority of deaths are white people. Now check out a recent New York Times article that reports on the outrageous behavior of police in rural Kentucky, one of the poorest regions in the nation. Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries in the world. Again, this is not a coincidence. So next you will hear a press conference from activists uniting together to commemorate Brown's death. Finally, you will hear from a, me- a mentor of mine, Larry Hamm of the People's Organization for Progress. He is speaking at a police accountability rally for the killing of Trayvon Martin. Not exactly a police um, killing, but he was targeted because he was black. Trayvon was killed on June 5th, 2013. And the guy who killed him was a wannabe police officer. Now Larry reminds us to keep our eyes on the prize. Don't allow yourself to get distracted by people trying to bring up important issues and important problems, but they obscure the need to stay focused on the issue at hand. For example, right now in Afghanistan, we need to stay focused on getting people out of the country to safety. There are a lot of important issues to talk about and there will be time to do so. But the crisis demands we focus on the people who need help.
4: More empowerment, more. I'm also one of the lead organizers for the United We Fight Commemoration Weekend. On this coming weekend, we will remember the loss of Michael Brown, Jr., a college-bound high school graduate graduate murdered by then police officer Darren Wilson, formerly of the Ferguson Police Department. On this coming weekend, we will also commemorate the one-year anniversary of the courageous actions that led to the Ferguson uprising, which Uh, that led to the Ferguson Uprising, which inspired a national and international movement for black and brown lives. We commemorate the Ferguson Uprising because we are humbled by the fact that our actions, albeit then followed by a four and a half hours of anguish exacerbated by the heat of a Midwestern August, were the flashpoint that turned a moment into a movement. This weekend, we will use the hashtag #UnitedWeFight. This theme represents the interconnectedness of our desire to resist oppression locally, nationally, and internationally. This theme represents our acknowledgement of our common oppressors, and this theme represents our community's desire to stand in solidarity with all of the cities and countries fighting back, and to uplift the names of the nearly 1,000 men, women, and children who we have lost to police violence in the last year. The events that we have planned for this weekend are intended to show the strength of community, the value of self-empowerment, and the power of the people. All of the events taking place on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are family-friendly, free of charge, and open to the public. During this weekend, we ask that free speech and the right to demonstrate be respected, and that matters that warrant police intervention or arrest are dealt with according to the rules of engagement established by the Don't Shoot Coalition. Today, you will hear from several speakers representing participating organizations and coalition members. We are the Ferguson Action Council, and we are one of the many coalitions representing dozens of organizations that have played an active role in what has become the second largest civil rights movement in post-war US history. At this time,
5: I would like to introduce Montega Simmons. Thank you, Nabea. As she said, my name is Montega Simmons. I'm the chair and director for the the Organization for Black Struggle. For more than 35 years, the Organization for Black Struggle has fought for an end to violence that's been inflicted by the state um, and by agents of the state. Violence that too often um, results in dead black and brown bodies. Violence that too often results in the economic devastation of black and brown communities. Violence that leaves black and brown communities paralyzed and trapped in both fear and poverty. These issues didn't begin on August 9th. A month before Mike Brown Jr. was killed, unarmed Christopher Jones was killed by police. A year before that, Carrie Ball Jr. was shot more than 20 times by the police. Throughout the last year, you've seen not just protests, but but you've seen folks do trainings in nonviolent direct action. You've seen folks go (coughs) lobby uh, representatives of our government. You've seen legislation floated uh, before elected members of our government. And yet, still, the body politic has remained unresponsive specifically to the issue of police violence in our communities. And our demands, that just for our most basic right to live life free from fear. We come together this week to first and foremost commemorate our dead. Not just Mike Brown, but for all the lives over the last year. As she said, right now we're looking at almost a thousand folks. Bodies for which no one has really been held accountable. And in the state of Missouri, the body of government has pretty much just been silent. There's been a real refusal to address issues concerning police. Second, we're here to recommit ourselves to the affected families, to our communities, and our fellow actors who still stand in unity with each other. To them we say, fear not. Our time is now and here. united." We're fighting to bring real safety and security to our streets. United, we stand to bring love and light to our communities. United, we fight for justice and liberation, not just for now. We fight as part of a continuum that goes well past August 9th. And we're fighting for lives that have yet to be born.
4: Thank you. Um, Next, we will hear from Jonathan Polfis of Tribex.
3: Thank you, Nabeer. Thank you, Montego. My name is, again, Jonathan Polfus and I will, be, I will be speaking on protest. This movement works to bring attention to police brutality and disparate treatment, which are tools of institutional and systemic racism, tools of the new Jim Crow. Data from Center for Juvenile and Criminal Justice shows that young blacks are killed at a rate 4.5 times higher than any other race or age. More data shows that blacks, while 13% of the population, are victims in 26% of police shootings. Embarrassed by this problem of outcomes resulting from racism and second-class treatment of us, many in positions of power across this country, from political to social apparatus, employ a blame-the-victim approach rather than addressing causation. This is cowardice and only contributes to barbaric miscarriages of justice, and ever negative disparities plaguing our communities across this nation with the blood of black people calls out from the pavement and the dirt underneath. With flight not being an option, we in the movement, in this movement, pre and post August, know we must fight. Our protest, how we are seen and are heard, removes the shroud and frees people to acknowledge institutional and systemic racism. We expose this demon for its cowardice, hypocrisy and evilness. By targeting institutions and individuals that find it justifiable for entire family trees to have limbs cut off by law enforcement, by politics, deeply ingrained in the history of this nation, we continue to spread our messages of accountability and righteous anger and indignation. We rail against the creation of permanent underclasses in the so-called wealthiest nation on the planet. Until extrajudicial police killings against black people stop, until mass incarceration, until the new system of enslavement is not advanced as the go-to means of controlling our communities and building wealth here, until we are able to build and heal our own communities without being thwarted at every turn, there will continue to be an outcry that is this movement. That is this movement locally. That is this movement regionally. That is this movement nationally. We are aware, we are unafraid, and we are ready.
4: Thank you, Jonathan. Next, we'll hear from Denise Lieberman from the Don't Shoot Coalition.
6: Thank you, Nabiya, Mankega and Jonathan. My name is Denise Lieberman. I'm a senior attorney with Advancement Project, a racial justice organization, and along with Michael McPherson, serve as the co-chair of the Don't Shoot Coalition. Don't Shoot is a coalition of several dozen local organizations formed in response to the police shooting death of Michael Brown last year. We call on police to exercise restraint and practice tactics of de-escalation in the days ahead. Unfortunately, we have seen too often what happens when police um, fail to use de-escalation and escalate situations that are otherwise manageable. We know that restraint can ensure The people are able to successfully exercise their constitutional rights in the days ahead. Don't Shoot has had conversations with police in St. Louis City, St. Louis County, Ferguson, and a number of other North St. Louis County municipalities to urge police to adhere to the rules of engagement Don't Shoot released last fall in advance of Ferguson October. We call particular attention today to police interactions with youth. And remember that for many of these young people out on the streets, this may be their first exposure to civic engagement and participation in actions to improve conditions in their community. These young people, the young people who had the courage to step up and speak out when the rest of us didn't. These young people who stood in the streets to say no more to violence at the hands of police. We must protect their constitutional rights to speak out in this commemoration ahead. Police should approach youth with respect and restraint and view youth protest as a teachable moment when young people can express their views and exercise their constitutional rights. We also note that as of August 1st, as a result of a court settlement in response to police overreach, police departments in St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and the Missouri State Highway Patrol now all have policies in place limiting the use of chemical agents in street demonstrations and we demand that those policies be adhered to. Mm -hmm. Too often we've seen manageable situations escalate and that is unnecessary and won't be tolerated. There has been too much violence and too much bloodshed. We need to allow youth and all people to express themselves peacefully Police should not single out individuals uh, and and take them aside. We need to show respect to our youth and allow them to discuss their concerns and vent the anger and the rage that have brought us here. Police should show up in plain clothes, not escalate situations, do not appear in riot gear, and understand that treating people with humiliation and disrespect, will only cause the same in return. Remember that live streamers and observers have constitutional rights to be on the streets to observe and document the historic activities ahead. And finally, let's remember the time-honored tradition that protest and demonstration have had, indeed have always had, in building a better society and better community. That has been the only thing in this nation that has driven us to social progress. Let's uphold that promise in the days ahead, knowing that united, we will come together to address the issues.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much, Denise. Um, our final speaker today will be Reverend Seku from the Fellowship of Reconciliation.
7: Uh, thank you, uh, Nabiya, and to uh, my distinguished colleagues. Uh, my name is Reverend Osajifo Seku. I am the Bayard Rustin Fellow with the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the nation's oldest interfaith peace organization celebrating 100 years of engaging in nonviolent civil disobedience uh, in America and abroad. I want to lift up our activities on this coming Monday, August 10th, a moral Monday where we are calling on the community of conscience around the country to engage in acts of civil disobedience to lift up a need for federal intervention on questions of police brutality and systematic racism. We call on the community of conscience to be committed to militant, nonviolent civil disobedience while raising these questions and creating the moral drama that the nation's conscience might be pricked. The question before us is, does the nation still have a conscience and the jury is still out? Also, I want to note that what is particular and unique about this moment uh, in history, that Ferguson represents the longest rebellion against police brutality in the history of the country, that it is second only to Montgomery in terms of a community taking to the streets daily to articulate their humanity. It is three months longer than the Selma campaign, and it is the first time since the Civil War that everyday people have set the political agenda for our nation. And so we ask that the community of conscience might engage and support in various acts, targeting specific uh, spaces in order to lift up a national mandate that includes legislation uh, to stop the militarization of policing and uh, the end of police brutality. And then lastly, we call upon you, the media, as the fourth estate whose responsibility is to hold accountable the other estates of the government and to make sure that elites and suzerains and those in power are held accountable. And so as you begin to tell the story of these young people, that you will emphasize the fact that they have been predominantly nonviolent for nearly a year, that they have lobbied the president and local officials that they have fed the homeless and the hungry and that they have engaged in the best of the democratic tradition and that you will not focus on sensationalized forms and activities but rather lift up the humanity of young people Thank come back you. on you
8: we can't play on this and lastly brothers and sisters let me say this so somebody else can come up here and speak let us not get confused is about two things. It's about racial justice and racial equality. People are going to want to talk about everything else. They're going to want to talk about the sun, the moon, and the stars. But we can't take our eyes. Off the prize. Trayvon wasn't killed by a gang member. Trayvon wasn't killed outside a club. Trayvon wasn't killed after a concert. Trayvon wasn't shot on his stoop. Trayvon was killed by a white man who was hunting him because of the color of his skin. That's why Trayvon Martin was killed he was killed, and that's what this is about. People want to take one problem and try to cover up the other problem. I'm all for stopping the violence. We got to stop the violence, but the violence in our community is a different issue. This is an issue of racial justice. Why should our mothers have to worry about whether or not their son is going to be hill by a white vigilante or a white racist cop on their way home from school. We shouldn't have to worry about that. And that's what this issue is about. So let us unite, brothers and sisters. Let us be in this for the long haul. It took us five years, five years to get those cops in jail for murdering Earl Faison. So let's come together again and again. Let's do what we have to do let's mobilize every organization here have your own demonstration have a demonstration of your own block let there be a thousand demonstrations a thousand times let it pour out into the street until everybody knows that we will not let this pass power to the people